1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll begin at verse 14, and as you're finding it, are you aware that there is, this is going to seem a random way to begin, but are you aware that there is a python problem in southern Florida? Have you heard about this? Pythons were not indigenous to southern Florida, apparently, but due to escaped pets or released pet pythons that owners didn't know how to handle anymore, they have uh, really found a nice home down there, particularly in the Everglades, and they have breeded. They've been fruitful and multiplied, and over the last decade, they have pulled out thousands and thousands of pythons from uh, south Florida. And they, they're trying to figure out what to do. Some people suggest they release mongooses, mongeese, uh, to help. They've, uh, they've had days where it was just open python hunting days to bring people who are interested in that to come and try to control the python population. But it really is a big problem. And so I want you to imagine that one of these pythons, they're under siege. Everybody's trying to figure out how to control the python population. One of these pythons slithers away from South Florida north and is looking for a more hospitable environment where people aren't always trying to hunt him and kill him. Up the, the eastern seaboard, finds his way to Charlotte, North Carolina, and and finds his way. The, the parking lot here at Doolin's Grove is, is very warm. Sun beats down on it. Find, finds it pretty comfortable around the Doolin's Grove church area. Um, takes up residence outside of, of our building. Now, on a Friday, the pastor of Dillon's Grove foolishly leaves the door cracked open and doesn't realize it and goes home, you know, for Friday evening, Saturday. We all filter in here to church, not realizing that this python from South Florida has made his way into the church building. So we go about our morning. Uh, Ron makes coffee. We have our prayer meeting. We have Sunday school. Python's just sort of slinking around, trying to stay covert. We come in here for the service, we pray and we sing our songs, not knowing that the python is in our midst, in this room. And then as I begin preaching, you look down and there's a python at your feet. Looking back at you is that weird little python head. What do you do in that moment? Scream and shriek and run. I bet if that happened this morning, the least athletic among us would immediately transform into an Olympic hurdler, <laughs> covering 10 pews at a time, getting out of here, escaping, fleeing the python from Florida. All that to say, that is the command we're being given in this passage, to flee. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Escape from idolatry. Get away from idolatry as fast as you possibly can. You cannot imagine how dangerous idolatry is to the Christian. Flee idolatry. That is the overall banner over the rest of the passage in our sermon this morning. Anything that you are tempted to rely on and worship and love and adore and cherish above God himself can be an idol. And your relationship to this thing or this person could become idolatry. And idolatry is to be escaped like a python on the loose. Flee idolatry. Now we have to get our heads into ancient Corinth here to understand what Paul's about to lay out. And you're going to be tempted to think that this is irrelevant to you 
because you don't live in ancient Corinth. But I promise you that it is relevant to you. So let me explain the issue that they were facing. The Christians in Corinth were surrounded by all these pagan temples. And in these pagan temples to idols, they would offer animal sacrifices. And through this sacrifice process, the the priests of these pagan temples would butcher the meat, and the worshipers could either use that meat in a big worship feast that they would invite their friends and neighbors to, possibly including some of these Christians in the church at Corinth, or they would sell this meat that had been sacrificed in idol worship in meat markets near the temples, and this would have been great meat. This would have been really good food. And so the Christians in Corinth, they had been saved through Jesus Christ, and they knew that these idols that these pagans were worshiping were were really nothing. They were non-entities. It was all made up, and that this meat was really just neutral and was okay to eat. But some of the Corinthian Christians were really torn up in their conscience about it because last week before they were saved, they were doing this pagan worship with this this meat. And so when they saw their brothers eating it, it, it freaked them out. And then they were tempted to eat it, but really in their consciences, they felt like they were sinning and it was a big mess and they didn't know what to do about it. And so they wrote to Paul. And in uh, really beginning in chapter 8, Paul devotes several chapters to helping them think through this idol meat issue. So his first point that he makes in chapter 8 is, you're right, you have, you have the right to eat this food that had been sacrificed to idols. Idols are nothing. The meat is just meat. You can eat it. You're free to do that. But more important than your rights is that you be loving to your brothers and sisters who get tripped up by this stuff. So yeah, you have the right to eat this meat, but you may want to not eat it because it's really causing a lot of damage to your brother beside you who, who believes that this is evil because it was used in pagan worship. Okay, are you following along with me so far in this? I know you weren't coming in hoping to learn about idol meat this morning, but I promise this is applicable to you. Then in chapter 10, where we were last week, he begins saying, yes, it's your right, you can eat it, but more important than that, you need to love your brothers and sisters, and so you may need to abstain from eating it. And then something else you may not have considered, Corinthians, sin and idolatry is really dangerous. And by getting involved in this these idolatrous elements, the, the meat itself, you are coming really close to the pagan idolatrous practices. And God's people have a long history of tripping up and falling into sin and falling into idolatry. So this isn't anything to treat too lightly. And that's what he's talking about in our passage. He's wanting the Corinthians to just stop and think for a minute. So we're going to stop and think with the Corinthians for a minute about idolatry. So verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Escape it as fast as you can. 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Think about it for a minute. Judge for yourselves what I'm about to lay out. See if this makes sense to you. So the point he's going to make next, we are going to have to think. We will have to think together a little bit this morning. The point that he's going to make, and I wrote it down to make sure I say it correctly, to consume the elements of worship is to participate in the object of worship. 
To consume the elements of worship is to participate in the object of worship. Now, that's a a complicated idea, but let's read verse 16, and he will flesh out what this means. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So now here he's talking about what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Christians were given this practice as central to our worship of gathering together, eating of of bread that was broken, and drinking of a cup. And the bread and the cup represent Jesus' death on our behalf. We just did this during the Good Friday service, and we do it frequently, so you're familiar with with what, what he's talking about. Now, as Christians, we know that these elements, the bread and the cup, are called elements of communion, the communion elements. These elements don't just remind us of things that are true about what Jesus did. They don't only remind us of what happened. They are a participation in what happened. They're not just symbols. They are a participation in what happened with Jesus' blood and body. We're not just observers, we're participants when we eat the bread and drink the cup as Christians, the way Jesus instructed us to. Now this word in verse 16, participation, it's a Greek word that's usually translated fellowship. It has the idea of close, personal, intimate connection and involvement. When we eat that bread and when we drink that cup as Christians, looking beyond the elements of the bread and the cup to the reality behind it, Jesus Christ's death on our behalf, his death is our death. His life in resurrection is our life in resurrection. His payment for sin is our payment for sin. Our sin was placed on his head. His righteousness was transferred to us. His relationship with God the Father as a son, becomes our relationship with God the Father as a son. So we Christians are not distant observers of these realities. We're participants in it, implicated in it, closely, personally, intimately connected and involved in it. That's why we are united as one. He goes on to say in verse 17, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Why? For we all partake of the one bread. That's what unites us. We're fellow participants in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. This is how dedicated acts of worship work. And we have this little piece of bread and this cup. Nothing magical in the bread or the cup. I've told you before One of my favorite stories along this line is when Will Boston was in the youth group and before a Sunday service, we were in the kitchen and he starts just chugging the grape juice from the refrigerator. I said, Will, that's the communion juice. And he's like, oh, what have I done? But but in that moment, it it was genuinely just Welch's grape juice. There is nothing magical about the juice or the crackers. What is significant is the spiritual realities just behind the juice and the crackers when we partake of those in worship together. It's a participation in the blood and body 
of Jesus Christ. This is what worship, how worship works. This is how worship has always worked. This is how it worked in ancient Israel. Verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So in ancient Israel, they would eat the meat sacrificed on the altar, and they, in, in consuming those elements of worship, they're participating in the altar itself and that atonement being made for them, that relationship with God directly. Now, in trying to figure out some parallel, some analogy to help me understand this, the closest thing I could come up with is this. And in all humility and without any crassness, I think this holds true. I'll give you a SAT analogy to think about this. What marital intimacy is to marriage, communion is to the new covenant. It is the experiencing and the renewing of the participation in the relationship with the God beyond those elements. So all that to say, if that was confusing, all that to say, when you use something physical to worship, you are participating in that object of worship. It gets you close and involved. And we've been using Christian examples and Jewish examples. But Paul is wanting us to think about what the Corinthians were doing. You know, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when God's people would fall into idolatry, he didn't just get aggravated with them. He didn't just say, ah, you, people are getting involved in these annoying rituals that are meaningless. I wish you would just stop it. You look silly because those aren't real gods. I'm the only real God. Now, he didn't just get mildly annoyed. He was furious. And he talked about it like spiritual adultery. When God's people commit idolatry, they're cheating on him. And it's serious. So now, getting back to what the Corinthians were dealing with, in verse 19, Paul makes the point that it's not really about the idols or the food. It's about what's behind the idols. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. He says, you're right, Corinthians, those idols are nothing. It's an illusion. I brought this hippo because this is the example I've always used when I teach the youth about idolatry. Now, this is just a wooden, carved hippopotamus. It's just wood. Same type, you know, it's not probably not the same type, but it's wood, just like this is wood. It's inanimate. It's neutral. Usually it sits in my bookshelf as a bookend to keep books from falling down. Nothing dangerous about this. But... If I, for some reason, came to believe that this was an idol, a representative of an actual spiritual force that could give me power or could give me peace or could give me pleasure in some way, and I began to worship this hippopotamus as the idol representative of that spiritual reality, then it becomes more than just a piece of wood. It becomes a conduit to the demonic. 
So there's nothing dangerous about the idols. What's dangerous is the spiritual reality just behind the idols. The demonic forces at work. Yes, demons are real. We don't talk about them a whole lot in America. It almost feels silly to talk about things like this. But the Bible makes absolutely clear demons are real and very active in the world. In Ephesians 6, we see that they scheme against us as God's people. In 1 Peter 5, we see that Satan himself, the king of the demons, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In Ephesians 2, we see that it's demonic forces at work behind the world as it is. The world system designed to lure us away from God into living for our flesh and satisfying the desires of our bodies. In 1 Timothy 4, we see that demons are at work within churches, spreading false teaching and deceiving people. So they're real and they're at work. And Paul's point here is that just as communion is a participation in Jesus Christ, idol worship is a participation in demons. Paul here is acting like a fish talking to a bunch of other fish. And he's saying, no, worms are fine. Worms are totally fine. They're just yummy, delicious meat cylinders. (laughs) There's nothing dangerous about a worm. A worm can't hurt you. But the problem is, often hidden within a worm is a metal hook. And I've seen countless fish Swallow the worm and get snagged on the hook and dragged away. That's basically what Paul is saying. Yes, there's nothing wrong with eating the idol meat. There's nothing dangerous or scary about it. Even the idols themselves are nothing. But the problem is, when these pagans are all gathered around this idol, you can be guaranteed there's a demonic force at work there. Trying to capture, trying to hook, trying to drag away from the one true God. To use the, the marital intimacy example... You know, time with another person who's not your spouse is not evil. There's nothing evil about a husband spending time with a woman who is not his wife or a wife spending time with a man who's not her husband. But what is present is the danger of adultery. So what's dangerous here for these Corinthians who had gotten so casual about all this idolatrous stuff, they had gotten so casual about the idol meat, he's saying... It's true, it's not evil to go buy the steak from the idol temple meat market, or it's not necessarily evil to go have dinner with your friends, though they're not Christians, but you need to know if your participation in that is even a little bit in hopes of gaining power or peace or pleasure from that false god, you're in danger of idolatry. And idolatry is serious because it is fellowship with the demonic. It's fellowship with demons. He goes on to make clear that there is no place for idolatry in the Christian's life. We can't dabble in idolatry. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So there you have it. There is his argument about idol meat. It's the 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 answer to the question you'd probably never asked yourself. What do I do about idol meat? 
But there is application for us, and I have just two points of application, and this will close the sermon. First one is plain and simple. It's directly in verse 14. Flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Escape idolatry. Get as far away from it as fast as you can because it is so dangerous. Now, idolatry for us is a really confusing thing because we don't have temples next door worshiping clearly delineated named idols. So you have sort of vague idolatries where people begin to elevate things above God himself in a vague way that's hard to discern. So you have families that begin to elevate sports above everything else and all else, and and God and our relationship with God begins to just sort of get in the way, so we put that back here, and it's all about sports. That is idolatry. We have the the subtle idolatry as Americans. We live in a country that we, we love, and we're so grateful to be Americans. And slowly our identity as Americans begin, can begin to rise above our identity as Christians and citizens of the kingdom of God. Or they can weirdly merge to where we think they're the same thing when they're actually not. And, and that is idolatry. Career, family, success, things that are genuinely good can rise to the level of idolatry. And we have to remember that there are demonic forces at work in the general systems and setup of our world culture. Go look at Ephesians 2. So we've got to take these things seriously and let the Lord search our hearts. But, but really, the more faithful application of this passage has to do with the more focused idolatries. Now, I, I do not, as your pastor, I am not aware of this being a problem for any of you, but it needs to be said because it's in God's Word. We do have modern examples of pagan worship in our culture from other religions that are false religions because they aren't worshiping the one true God to New Age spirituality and practices associated with that and the occult. And these actually get very close to this, I believe. And I'm going to give you two examples. And these examples are probably going to sound silly at first. They may sound silly in the end when I'm done explaining, too, but I'm going, to, I'm going to give you these two examples. So the first example I'm going to give you is yoga. Okay, I don't know that we have a lot of yoga going on among us as a church. Now, is there anything wrong with stretching? No, there's nothing wrong. I'll stretch right now. Oh, man, it feels good. Now, was that pagan worship? No, I'm tight. Like I said, I woke up with a crick in my neck. I'm stretching. Nothing wrong with stretching. But do keep in mind where yoga came from. It has Hindu roots, and it is an avenue for some people to pursue peace and power and pleasure apart from God. And some people do do that, believing they're opening themselves up to some sort of energy, some sort of spiritual strengthening. And, and that indeed is idolatry. And so you would, you would never enter a yoga class thinking, I'm going to go worship some idols today, but you might find yourself in a yoga class at the YMCA and your instructor starts to talk about all these weird Eastern mystical beliefs. And you may be tempted to think, well, you know, this is really peaceful. Maybe there is some peace and power and pleasure to be found in pursuing 
other religious endeavors beyond Christianity. I'll just dabble in it. Mainly I'm a Christian, but maybe I'm a little Hindu too. That's extremely dangerous. And down that route lie demons, according to Scripture. Another example, meditation. Okay, the Bible commands us to meditate on Scripture, to fill our minds with God's Word and to think it through into prayer, into practice. And that is good and right. But what about the meditation that if, if you've ever downloaded a, an app on your phone to help with stress or anxiety, what about that meditation? Well, often it'll have you focus on your breathing. Now, is there anything sinful about breathing? No, we're all doing it right now. Is there anything wrong with noticing your breathing and slowing yourself down enough to just calm down and get a grip when you're really anxious? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But like the idol meat, remember where this practice came from. This comes from Buddhist roots and has to do with Buddhist false religious ideology. And some people do this thinking that it is going to connect them with spiritual forces that will give them some peace, some power, some pleasure apart from God. And so you might be doing this just to get your heart rate down, and then the app you're listening to or whatever you're doing, you may start to be encouraged to open yourself up to spiritual realities that are not God himself. And it's really dangerous. Some other quick examples I'm not going to work all the way through. There is a movement, this New Age spirituality movement, where they carry around these crystals that are supposed to give them the special energy. I think these things are dangerous. There are people that consult tarot cards. There are people who play with a Ouija board, not just to play with it as a funny joke, but genuinely thinking maybe... Yeah, it's kind of funny, but it's also a little spooky. Maybe I can connect with some spiritual power apart from God. Horoscopes, kind of in the same ballpark. So, if you are involved in any of these things, I really think the biblical advice, the place to start is flee, escape. Beware. Be careful. Be careful any lure to pursue some spiritual entity that might give you peace or power or pleasure apart from God. Beware. Be careful. So, you've heard of the Billy Graham rule, maybe. Billy Graham had a rule that he would never be alone with a woman that was not his wife, period. If he was walking onto an elevator by himself and the doors opened up, and there was a woman in there. As I understand it, even if that woman was his grandmother's age, it didn't matter, he would just say, no, thank you, and he would wait. Because he knew that many, many ministers had been taken down by adultery and sexual temptation. And he just thought, well, I'm just going to cut off any possibility of it. I feel like what Paul is advocating here is sort of a Billy Graham rule related to idolatry. Why not just not even go there? Let's not dabble in demons even a little bit. That's probably the safest, wisest route. So that's the first. Flee from idolatry. That's the first application. The second one I think actually may come closer to home for us. And this is it. Flee from idolatry. Cling to Christ. Cling to Jesus Christ. 
For the modern American Christian, I don't think that our big problem is that we're tempted every day to worship a false idol that we can hold and see like it was for the Corinthians. It's different for us. I actually think that the danger for us is what I'll call aloofness. We are tempted to just be aloof to spiritual things. The language of this passage we read, it uses that word participation over and over again. Fellowship in the spiritual realities of Jesus Christ. Closeness, personal connectedness and involvement with the realities of Jesus Christ. We in modern American Christians tend to be distant observers of the things of Christ. We tend to be impersonal spectators of the things of Christ. We tend to be detached critics of the things of Christ. Disconnected, uninvolved, faux Christians, rather than real Christians living in the reality of what is ours through him. So I want to remind you at the end of the sermon here that, as Paul said at the beginning of his letter, using the same word, we are called by God into fellowship with the Son. You are called by God into fellowship with Jesus Christ himself. Close, personal, intimate connection and involvement with the Son, Jesus Christ. If you scanned your New Testament, one of the most common two-word phrases you would see is the phrase, in Christ. It's all through the Bible. As Christians, we're in Christ. That's how close we are to Jesus. You would see that in Christ, we are redeemed. In Christ, we are dead to sin. In Christ, we are alive to God. In Christ, we have eternal life. In Christ, there is no condemnation for us. In Christ, we are free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, we are one body. In Christ, we are fellow workers. In Christ, we are approved. In Christ, we are sanctified. In Christ, we are given grace. Those who have died, in Christ, they are asleep in him. In Christ, we always have reason to hope. In Christ, we are established with each other. In Christ, we are always victorious. And the list goes on and on and on. In Jesus, we have all the peace and power that we could ever want. So let's flee from idolatry and let's cling to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this weekly rhythm of coming together and in a disciplined way, just moving through your word. Thank you for speaking to us in it, making clear things that we need to know, even if we don't know that we need to know them. I pray for protection over your people here from idolatry, the many subtle ways it creeps into our lives. Reveal to us if we are clinging to any idols and help us to drop it and flee and cling instead to Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.